There are a number of ways we could summarize or describe what it is that we're learning or exploring here. And one of the ways we could understand or describe what it is that we're engaged in here is the process of learning that we are part of all that is, that we are part of, not separate from, or even, in fact, ultimately different from anything around us, from everything around us. We're often orienting our attention in this practice towards our inner experience. And a lot of the sense of the meditative or the spiritual journey is often described as going in, looking in. And there's a a truth and a validity and an importance to that orientation. And one of the things that we notice and that begins to stand out as we go in and we look is we see that there isn't some particular thing that we can find in here that's who we are. There's this flow of changing experience, of rippling sensation, of sort of, it seems, inexhaustible thinking and various other phenomena that we encounter. But there's nothing we can really define ourselves by in this process, this experience that we encounter because we see that it keeps changing and there's nothing that stays the same for any extended period of time. And that's one direction of exploration and inquiries towards the deepening and the recognizing of that truth. But equally important and, in fact, liberating for us is the understanding that when we look at everything around us, when we start to explore what we imagine to be outside, we can't really say that we're separate from it. We can't really set ourselves apart from it in any enduring or absolute way. So this, is, this, this latter theme is what I'd like to speak about this evening. And for myself, my own early sense of spirituality, before I even had the concept of spirituality in my head, my sense of it, because my family weren't in any way involved with orthodox or sort of recognisable forms of religion or um, practice, but I very much received a sense of concern and sensitivity towards living creatures, towards life, towards things, a sense of really being made aware of how the world is affected by my, by our behaviour, and how we are affected by the world in so many ways. And this way in which we affect and are affected, which is the the primary condition we can recognise ourselves as being in, when we talk about heart and mind and uh, We used the word in the beginning of the retreat, citta, which uh, refers to the sense of heart and mind and the the quieting, the stilling, the opening of that as being one way of understanding what we're engaging in. That 
what defines the characteristic of that that we call citta, we could say heart, mind, or I prefer heart-mind, I think I used that term a couple of nights ago, um, what defines that or how it's revealed is as something which is affected and responds. And in the responses, so the world touches us, or what's around us touches us, and then there's a response. Sometimes it's reactivity, sometimes it's coming more from a, a grounded uh, responsivity. And yet in that process of being affected and affecting, what that's pointing to is that we're not separate from that which is around us because we're affected by it. And we affect it. So it's useful, it's important to reflect on, to contemplate, what does that mean? What does that imply for my life? What does that suggest about the truth of this experience, this circumstance that we call being alive, being here, being now? So for myself, there was a sense of relationship to the natural world was a very um, fundamental and continues to be a fundamental part of my uh, my sense of what's important. And I, I remember with, uh, quite sure with exactly what it is now that I come to use that phrase, but I, I remember actually what it is, it's the sense of profound support I felt the first time I spent some time in solitude when I went and I, I slept amongst a, a grove of, or in the midst of a grove of kauri trees, these uh, these incredible, wonderful trees that uh, to be found in New Zealand, and the oldest one that they found was four and a half thousand years old. It's like they've seen some life, and uh, these weren't quite that old, but they were still quite vast. And I just remember the sense of being amongst them when I was really quite young, confused, didn't know what to do with my life or where it was going, scared about every option I had available, and something in me just said, "Okay, just go out there and be by yourself and see what comes." And I, by accident, found this place and. Uh, Something about that for me was very important. Something about just finding some sense of support amongst natural a natural environment. And so turning our attention to the world around us is just as important as turning our attention to the world within us. And the natural world has great power, has a real potency that we can start to tap into as one dimension of spiritual practice, and I would say an essential dimension of spiritual practice. One of the things that stands out that I, I notice is a, a sense of just how big it is. I mean, that little word doesn't quite do it, does it? I think someone actually used a word like that in a group a day or two ago, and we kind of reflected on the fact that the word doesn't quite get there. They might have even said vast, but that's only one more letter than big. And you kind of, when we're talking about what we're talking about, which is to stand on the earth and look up at the sky, or on a high point and look out to the horizon, and just get, or begin to sense the kind of the, the dimensionality that we're here in the vastness 
that's around us. It's something beyond what our conceiving mind can really grasp and get hold of. It's something beyond what we can really kind of understand when we try and understand through the interpretation of our sensory experience. All we know is, all we know is, how I know it is, is just the sense of, it's almost like the mind goes quiet when we realize, I can't really conceive even just how far away one of those little spots of light in the night sky is. We have no idea, apart from numbers written on paper with lots of zeros on them, but that's got really nothing to do with it. Now you hold it up in the sky, one with lots of zeros on it, light years. Hmm. No, no, there's some other way we're touched. And there's a, there's a lovely uh, practice that uh, I, I think, I don't know where it originates, but I, uh, I know Jack Cornfield, one of the senior teachers in our tradition, would sometimes get his students to do it. And it involves um, going outside in the, on a dark but clear evening, and lying on the ground. So just imagine, you could imagine doing this. And lying on the earth, looking up at the sky, and it's a clear night. There's all the stars. and Just as you're looking up at that and sensing this vast open space with these little points of light, you could just contemplate, perhaps, as you're doing that, just imagining that you're not actually lying on the earth. You're actually at the very bottom of this globe, the sphere, hanging above this vast, empty space. And this isn't just an idea, because, you know, from where I come from in New Zealand, this part, this is the bottom. (laughs) This is the bottom. And just, just sensing, what is it that we're just hanging above that? We start to get a sense of, wow, there's a lot of space out there. We're suspended above, hanging over this vast, empty space. And fortunately, something about the nature of this planet and physical matter, we call it gravity, but we actually don't know what that is. We just know what it does, which it means things attract each other. That's all it says, gravity. Things attract each other. But we're really fortunate that it's there. Because if it wasn't for gravity, the first time we moved, we'd ping off up into space. And the odds of actually getting to one of those little spots of light out there and finding it a good place to be are pretty small. So as well as sensing just how vast the space out there is, we might also get a sense of how really fortunate we are to be here, (coughs) given the options. And that might sound a little like, you know, fanciful. What's he talking about? That's not going to happen. Of course it's not going to happen. But contemplating in that way, I think, can give us perhaps some sense. What I find from that, and I I love to, I was mentioning to someone earlier, often when I'm on retreat I like to go and sleep out in the night and just be under the stars while I'm practicing. It's just something that I love. It's not that anyone else has to enjoy it. And you may not. But for me... What I notice is that I get a sense of, wow, you know, there's something about one's whole personal existence, you know, it's just a speck of dust, just this moment in a vast dimensionality of time and space. It's just tiny, and there's a certain humility in that, a certain, 
oh, you know, all my troubles. Yeah. They're okay in a certain way in that context. It's not that they are easy, but they're okay in that context. There's a certain humility with that. And at the same time, there's something exhilarating because, because the mind just kind of is quietened by that expansiveness, that vastness. Somehow one senses that one is part of all of this, that one is part of this vastness. And in that there's something we can rest in. There's something that kind of, it almost like, oh, we can breathe out into that recognition, that realisation, that understanding that we are part of this. Even if we can't really conceive what the totality of this is or might be. And there's a there's a kind of okayness about it, that it's not about good or bad or right or wrong, it's just another word of suchness. It's like when something is that big, we can't get involved, we don't get involved with fault-finding and improvement-making. You know, nobody I know ever looked up in the night sky and said, oh, you know, it would be nice if there's a few more stars over there and, well, you know, that constellation, it should really be adjusted so it really looks like a archer or whatever else. You know, we don't do that with the vast. It's only when we extract a fragment from a totality and we focus on it and say, that's the whole thing, like this body or this whatever it might be, the situation. That's when our mind can wrap itself around it, believe that it knows the whole thing it's dealing with and start to point out all the problems, shortcomings, limitations and get busy with figuring out the solutions. But we don't do that with the vast. And it's only because in some way we've lost touch with our being part of that that this is what we start to do with ourselves. That we somehow start to conceive that what we are is not as it should be. And that conceiving is not true. So we can notice the sense of almost like a releasing of the need to judge because there's actually nothing we can compare it with. We can only make judgments because we make comparisons between one and the next. But, you know, we're going to compare this universe with another one? Not likely. It just doesn't happen. And we can only compare one thing with another because we've separated them out and said, this is separate from that, therefore we compare them. So there's a lot of different, there's a few different themes or threads in this, not all of which might totally make sense. Don't worry if that's the case. If it doesn't make sense, you might actually be understanding what I'm pointing to. Um, but if you are, if it does make sense, that doesn't mean you're not understanding it. If you're not confused now, <laughs> I'll keep working on it. Because it's not something about how our mind organises this information that I'm concerned with here. One of the other ways we know and experience the natural world is the way that sometimes we're touched by it. And in this 
context of being here engaged in the practices, the yoga, the meditation, the silence, there's a way in which it opens us up. It's almost like it cleanses the the dullness and the kind of the distortions from our sensory apparatus. It's like we learn, we relearn a sensitivity. And it's like Helen spoke about it, I think it was a couple of days ago, with that sense of how for some there's the need for more and more intense stimulation because they've been desensitized through various unfortunate conditions and reactions, external conditions, internal reactions. This takes place. And here we actually can feel the sensitivity returning. We can start to sense more deeply what it's like to touch and be touched. And sometimes in that, very simple things resonate in us. And we can just see a small creature walking on the path. Or we can look just at a scene on the landscape or a tree or the light dappled through the leaves. And, and there's something in us that vibrates or that resonates. And again, we don't quite know what it is, but it affects us. It touches us. And there's a sense of openness or a sense of appreciation or sweetness. It just It's not something we conceive. But what's happening is that the outer is affecting us in our very core. Something we're conceiving or imagining or believing, perhaps, if we thought about it, to be out there is affecting us right in here. And what that's actually pointing to is that we're allowing ourselves to be touched by the reality of our not being separate from that which is touching us. That's what that deeper resonance brings or points to. It's actually, we don't, and we don't have to think of it in the terms I'm describing it, but that's how I understand what's happening. So, to notice how that may touch you. If there are moments when you're just taking a step and sometimes just putting one's foot in the grass, it's like, it's like there's something precious or beautiful going on in just the contact. As if the soles of our feet are happy to meet the surface of the earth. And the earth and the grass is likewise happy to meet the soles of our feet, whether they're washed or not. Just something about that. Just sometimes we notice that. Or we stop and we pause looking at a flower and there's some kind of communication that's happening to us, in us, with us, through us. And we're touched. And it's something precious to us. We remember those moments. Someone mentioned, I think, in a group, I can't remember, Saturday, Sunday, maybe Sunday, seeing a flower and just something touched them powerfully, profoundly, beautifully. It's like, oh, yeah. What is happening there? To be interested. What's happening? The natural world is a profound teacher. It shows us again and again the truth of change, the rise and fall, the passage of seasons, the turning of the weather from one to the next, the birth and death of things that move on. 
And that's something that we see all around us if we look and if we allow that in. The nature of things is this. And yet we see at the same time that there's an unstoppable aliveness to the process. There's a vitalness to that process of things coming and going and moving that, again, sometimes we can just be struck by how how strongly that aliveness keeps expressing itself. And um, I remember once running on one of the roads um, right going up to Dartmoor, near where I was living at the time, not just a few miles from where I live now, and um, finding this little like bracken frond. And it was sort of, I don't know if you can see, it was sort of half uncurled, and it was about that far from the edge of the Ashfelt tarmac road. And it had broken right through the surface of it. And there was a bit of the tarmac on the back of its curl, and it was just lifting its way up. And it's just like, would you look at that thing? How does that soft, green, tender moistness break its way through the hard, compacted, dense and mostly or seemingly sort of solid and dead surface of the road. How does it do that? It's like the power of that aliveness. And we can see it in a flower growing on a wall in an industrial wasteland, finding nutriment and nourishment and sustenance in the the dust that's gathered in a little crack or crevice in some filthy and, we might say, ugly sort of concrete environment. And to see how life does that. You know, if you leave it alone, a road or a piece of concrete or a building for any length of time at all, it doesn't take that long before nature takes it back. And I find it actually quite delightful to walk on old roads that are no longer used and see how they just get returned to the earth. Because it speaks of the power, the potency of the life The life that's in us, equally as it's in the little green fronds and blades of grass that break through the concrete paving, annoyingly, because then you have to fix your paving. But wonderfully, because look at that. What does that say about our own possibility for our life, for the, the shoots of our heart to find their way again through the, the sometimes the hardness or the, the density that we inhabit at times? And we can't control it. The natural world shows us that again and again. We can't control it. We can get used to creating comfortable boxes in which we've got buttons and switches connected to pipes and cables that allow us to adjust the temperature and adjust the um, air and adjust the um, lighting levels. And all that's wonderful. Great. Really helps. But sometimes we see that we can't just get it. A certain way. And if we go out of these little boxes and stand outside, one of the most important things that can happen is we see that this is not in my control. Because life is not in our control. It's the nature of it. And nature tells us about that again and again if we're willing to listen to what it has to say. So we can learn a lot from the natural world. And I remember for myself how 
For many years, I felt quite alienated from the human world, and it felt like a very weird and strange place, and I couldn't figure out why it was that people did what they did, because mostly it seemed to be just tragic what was going on. And I couldn't make sense of it, because as far as I could tell, people really wanted to be happy, but most of what seemed to be going on, and people didn't really want to hurt each other, but most of what seemed to be going on, one way or another, was causing so much pain and suffering. And it was really hard for me. I remember the confusion, the sense of that and and initially what I what I found was that just you know amongst sort of the the simplicity of trees and grass and natural landscapes that was where I could feel at ease and at home just have a sense of relaxing and opening and allowing life in again but I didn't really have any sense of connection that much with uh, with lots of life Although I probably did to a certain degree, and I certainly didn't imagine or think of myself as someone who wasn't connected. But over the years what I've seen is that it was easier with the trees and the plants, because they were pretty harmless, basically. They seemed to be very easy to look at with a lot of appreciation. But some of the experience that have touched, experiences that have touched me in my meditation journey and practice and retreats, just as importantly as moments of opening or inside and sitting cross-legged or walking back and forth, have been just moments of seeing life around me and what it's up to. And I remember this time when I was watching as I was walking the ground in front of me, just walking slowly as most of you will have been doing these days. Maybe all of you have been doing. Um, and walking and just seeing a little stick moving on the ground and thinking, oh, it's being blown by the wind and realizing, no, it's not. The wind's blowing the other way. So looking, having to get right down close to see that there was an ant about a millionth of the size of the stick dragging it along. Now, like the ant was literally, you know, smaller than the gap between my fingers and the stick was like this. And I just had the sense of, that would be my, like me picking up a tree and dragging it along. And I thought, that little guy is working really hard. <laughs> and at the time, I thought my practice was actually pretty hard. And I suddenly thought, wow, no, this is actually quite easy compared to dragging a tree along. And just some sense of the, the will, the commitment of that little creature. I just I said, oh, wow, would you look at that? And... Another time I remember just, this was at the old retreat house, at Gaia House, um, as it was then, a small vicarage. And uh, sitting out at the picnic tables, trying to get a robin to take a crumb out of, my mouth, out of my fingers. And there was a really tame robin, and it used to often come and take the crumb from your finger, which was really sweet, and it was like, great, what a nice experience. But then I was really watching the robin, and I saw as it came closer, that it was terrified. It was absolutely terrified. And it wanted that crumb. It really wanted that bit of high sort of energy, easy access, ready digestible food. You know? And I watched it and I could see it was being pulled towards that crumb and it was being pulled away from the danger that this, this kind of creature that could eat it or kill it. And it didn't know for sure whether it was going to get food or be food. And you know, sometimes it's like that, isn't it? There's something we really, really want, but we're not sure if we try and get it whether we're going to actually 
cause ourselves a lot of trouble. And I just, again, I just felt for this little creature. It's like, oh, wow, I'm torturing her. And so suddenly I realized, for my entertainment, to make myself have a nice Robin took a crumb from my finger experience, I'm putting this little guy through hell. So I just put the crumb down and stood back and let him have it. And felt, oh, great, here's another one. You know? Because in that moment I felt how that little creature and me, we weren't different. We weren't different. In that fundamental dynamic of life. The push and pull of desire and fear runs through the world, through creatures, through life. And I remember once, and this, though I can remember it from long ago, it happens pretty regularly, having some opportunity where I'm sitting to contemplate a mosquito, sitting in meditation with a mosquito. And it kind of reminded me of that when we had the hornet in here earlier, which is, in a way, a a matter of another whole order from a mosquito. I'm not trying to compare the two. Mosquitoes are a relatively tame event compared to a hornet. But nonetheless, just sitting there with this and and kind of irritated, you know, how am I supposed to meditate? This isn't very much fun. Um, I wish it would go away. But I don't want to hurt it because, you know, I really have a feeling for the, the precepts and my sense of caring for other beings. And I'm just like that. And then, you know, at some point, I just started thinking about what's this going on? And you know what's actually happening happening with a mosquito? The, the, the ones that take blood are the females. And they need it, actually, for their eggs. And I kind of had the sense, this is a mother looking for food for her children. And so actually what it is, this is a mother looking for food for her children. And here am I, with, you know, I don't know how many thousands of drops of blood in me, and it only probably needs one or two feeling threatened by this, feeling scared of this, feeling anxious about this threat, this prospect. So I just thought, okay, why not? And just some sense of, well, yeah, you can just have a few drops. It's a little bit itchy, but it's not that bad. It's actually much better than the (coughs) of trying to avoid it. Of course, once it took its fill, it flew off, it was gone. It was all over. So I'm not suggesting that that's something you have to do or engage in. Sometimes that's not what I want to do either, for sure. And, you know, make sure they get away, you know, brush them off. But something about allowing ourselves to feel that quality of, in a way, fellow feeling for the life around us. Opening ourselves to connecting with others is the same process as opening to connecting with ourselves. When we open our heart to another, we find that very openness is the openness we inhabit. It's the very openness of our life extends, expands, grows, unfolds by our inclusion of others in it. It's not like we lose something or we give something away in that. And to see, you know, we're all doing our best within the limits of our clarity and our confusion. We all mess up. We all get it wrong at times there's no other way that life can happen except that 
is a uh, great story, which I uh, like to tell of a, I'm not sure if it actually happened, but uh, might have done, of, um, of, a, of a dedicated Zen practitioner who went to see his master, and he, his master was very ancient and very sort of, uh, in a way, hard to, you didn't get a lot of access to this teacher, you mostly saw the other teachers, and so he had this one opportunity to go and ask him a question, he was very excited, great, and he says, Master, Master, can you tell me what is the most important thing to cultivate? And the Master looked at him and he said, Good judgment. And the student said, Oh, thank you, Master, thank you. How do you cultivate? How do you get good judgment? How do you cultivate? And he said, Master says, mm, Experience. Thank you, Master. Yes, yes. How do you get experience? Bad judgment. <laughs> That's how it works. There's no other way. That's how we learn. So, you know, we have to accept that that's the process, that we have our limitations, we will make mistakes, we'll get it wrong, we'll get confused. But if we're willing to look at all this and learn from it, then that gives it all meaning and purpose and value. And it's important to honour our good intentions, our aspirations, the things, the wholesome actions and the expressions of kindness and care, of sharing, of, of letting go, that we do express in our lives. All of us, we do these things. It's important to honour that. Because all of those expressions, all of those ways of being, are something that honours the truth of our interconnectedness, our interrelatedness. And, you know, when we, we think about this, when we sense or, or reflect on this, what I'm struck by is how even this very body, that we feel like it's mine, it's, it's of course, you know, it has its limitations. It's, it's ageing, it's, you know, it's discomforts, it's all the things that can be painful at times or embarrassing about it. And yet, you know, the sense of this being something that's not actually mine. Not some conceptual idea that, oh, it's all, you know, not self. Which is an interesting idea and there's a certain truth to it. But actually that I'm not the only one who lives here. You know, how many hundreds and thousands of millions of other organisms live in this physical structure and equally live in each of the physical structures that you call your body? Millions and millions of them. All over, on the inside, on the outside. It's full of other little creatures, really small ones. And if this thing was a democracy, we wouldn't be in charge. Now, actually, it is a democracy and we're not in charge, but to a certain level we have more choice about some of the things going on here than a lot of those little fellas. But what's it like just to see that, hey, this, this is a co-housing project <laughs> rather than it's my house and there's all those invaders? Like, what if we looked at it that way? For, I, I, for many years, struggled with the fact that I had and have a fungal infection between my toes that I could never get rid of. You know, athlete's foot, tinea, you hopefully don't know about it too much. But anyway, I do. And um, for a long time, despite treating it with any number of different, you know, beautiful, wonderful, organic, natural things and equally horrendous, nasty pharmaceutical things, it would tend to come back and regularly reappear in my life. And there was always this some sense that there's something offensive about it. It wasn't particularly painful or difficult. 
just offensive. There's this fungus eating away the skin on the inside between my toes. And it's like, how dare they? And then at some point I realised, those guys are going to still be here when I'm dead. They're going to have the last meal. It won't be me. You know, long after I'm no longer able to put any treatment between my toes, those guys will still be going, munch, munch, munch. So I've kind of called a truce with it. Now I actually quite like the idea in a certain way. So long as there's a balance and, you know, they don't get out of hand. And it's very much, actually it's much the same as it's always been, but the relationship to it is really different. And how would it be if we started to look at life that way a bit more? You know, maybe this is something to be shared rather than owned. And uh, I uh, shared a poem from Ryo Khan last night, the uh, Zen monk who was also a, he was known as something of a, a fool and he used to like to play with the children a lot and do, not a fool, but he was sort of, he wasn't your sort of very serious and proper and austere sort of monk even though he uh, lived alone and uh, really was very committed and deep practitioner. But the story goes that on one occasion, Ryokan was seen on a cold winter's morning after a frost, when the sun had risen, taking the lice out of his robe and putting them on a rock which was warming in the sun so they could be warm. And it's kind of like, wow, that's really compassionate. And then seen at the end of the day, picking the lice back up off the rock, and putting them back in his coat, putting them back in his robe. And you wonder, what? What was the condition of his heart and his mind that would lead him to act in that way? That he cared that much for those little creatures, that he was looking after them that actively. These weren't just chance occasional visitors who one begrudgingly sort of allows a little um, sustenance, which was probably more like my experience. It was like he was really he was really there with them. And again, I just find myself touched by that. It's so so beautiful. And there's something it speaks to again of a wisdom, of an understanding in which we've entered into ourselves so deeply that we've discovered that what this is to be is not boundaried by any physical form or shape, nor by any mental conceiving or construction. It's not bounded in that way. And again, the the sense of the natural world, of the world around us. Now, over time, what I discovered is it came to include the human world. For a long time it seemed like the human world wasn't part of the natural world to me. And that's a bit of a misunderstanding, actually, I realised. It's like, you know, I could feel really alienated by a city. I grew up in the country. I understand that for people who grow up in the country, in the city, someone's going out into the country feels like there's nothing there. You know, it's kind of scary and empty. And, you know, we have our different responses. I'm not saying one is right or wrong. But that's how it was for me. And then sometime I, I was reflecting on how, well, you know, if I see a termite mound, I was, when I was in America and first encountered termite mounds, it's like, wow, look at that. These creatures built that amazing structure. 
And at some point later I was thinking, well, what if I looked at a building like that? I said, wow, look, these creatures built that. Amazing. And it's true. It's amazing. Creatures, you know, educated animals built these things. And so what I'm actually describing is what was for myself the breaking down of the way in which I was holding me and human beings and human culture separate from nature and the natural world. It was a process. And for me it was one of the most important dimensions and continues to be one of the most important dimensions of my, my spiritual sort of unfoldment and experience. And in another way it's really ordinary. It's nothing esoteric. It's there for us all, if we just see that. And one of the things that I've found in many occasions and spoken about by uh, teachers and sages and poets is the way in which the world supports us in our life. Because sometimes... What takes place seems beyond what we can bear. Sometimes the losses, the grief, the pain can feel so tragic, so hard, so inexplicable or unfair that we just don't know how to handle it. We just don't know how to handle it. There's a little plaque in the garden's the grounds of a monastery I like to visit in England, in Chithurst or in Sussex. And it says, the cherry, trees blo- the cherry blossoms cover the hillsides for just a few days. Any longer? And we would not value them so. And underneath it says little Sam. And underneath that a single date. And it speaks to me of the the preciousness of what clearly is a life that was just for one day. And the preciousness but also what that is. To have that preciousness for just one day? Something in us cannot make sense of what that might be. And equally, if we look at the world and see the tragedy of hunger when there are mountains of food, of exploitation, of violence, of fear, of loneliness, of longing, sometimes it feels like my heart cannot contain that much suffering or even just in our own lives there are things we may have encountered or are encountering that are beyond what we can bear and in those times one of the refuges we can turn to is the natural world there's something about letting ourselves remember that we are part of that that really supports us that's really important Buddha Dasa who was a a uh, much-loved teacher and uh, uh, sort of one of the uh, great reformers in the monastic uh, order of Thailand, and uh, again, 20th century, a uh, similar sort of era to Ajahn Chah, who I mentioned 
Um, he was once asked, how does he respond to or work with people in great emotional pain? And he said, I send them out into the forest, into the nature, and I leave them there until they realize that they're part of it. When we feel that there's more than our heart can bear, and sometimes that's how it seems, we somehow are in that position because we are trying to hold more than actually we're able to. And more than ultimately we're asked to. Because we're holding ourselves separate from that which ultimately holds it all. And to that sense of to, to go into the... I, I love the phrase, to go into the nature and, or send someone into the natural world and leave them there till they realise that they're part of it. Over the years I've taught many retreats where we're actually outdoors most of the time, camping or walking, and uh, really exposed to the natural environment in a way that you know have some opportunity to be here when we're outside. And on one retreat, a young woman was in, in unbearable and deep, deep grief at the loss and the accidental death of a beloved close friend. And she just couldn't bear the suffering. She was just it was just so much pain for her. So hard. And she's you know, we were outside all the time. And one day after about five or six days she she came and she said to me, You know, I was walking up and down and then just suddenly it occurred to me to wonder how the trees where there was sort of small it was in the foothills of the Pyrenees and there were these uh, sort of semi stunted oak trees. They didn't grow very big, but there was plenty of them around. She said she started to wonder how these trees felt about the fact that Kai, her friend's name was Kai, that Kai had died. And she said, and I realised just directly and for sure that the trees were sorry too. And something in that, in her, just opened and rested with her grief. Not that I imagine in any way her grief was any less, but that somehow, and, you know, at one level we might say, Sorry, honey, the trees didn't know what was going on. But at another level, I think she was right. There's something about life that knows and that shares in that caring for any and every expression of itself. And sometimes we feel that, we know that. We can sense that in our hearts. And it's precious when we're touched in that way, even if it's painful, even if it feels like it tears us open. The openness that we're left with, despite the pain of the tearing, the openness actually starts to show itself as precious, as something we wouldn't want to be without. And that if we ultimately had to choose between the tearing and the openness, or sorry, between having both the tearing and the openness, or never the tearing but losing the openness, that actually we know we choose the openness with all the tenderness and rawness it sometimes brings. Because it's resting in something larger. It's resting in something larger. And larger than we can conceive. 
but not larger than our heart can resonate with. Our conceiving mind is a profoundly limited organ. It has some very useful functions. It can do some really useful things. It helps get us here and do all sorts of you know, helpful, useful, functional things. But it is not designed for really understanding what it means to be alive. And the words and the concepts will never do it for us. So when we step back into the vastness, the openness, the the totality of life as it is, sometimes we're struck by it, sometimes we feel its resonance, and sometimes it's sweet, and sometimes it is so, so tender. But it speaks to us in both those voices, in both those languages equally. And so far as we're open to it, we need to be open to both of those voices. Because if we close to one, we close to the other. And when we allow life to hold our pain, when we don't blame ourselves or the world or someone else for how it is, because we see that the sweetness and the rawness come together, the beauty and the tragedy are somehow woven into the same fabric, when we start to recognize that, then then there's a way in which we feel more that what is here is open and is free and cares deeply, cares deeply in a way that we can't quite explain or comprehend. But that caring shows itself through us again and again. And it shows itself around us again and again. And for all the horrors and the tragedy and the sadness that we can't always conceive or comprehend or explain. So much of it is born of blindness, and we've spoken about blindness, that we just don't see or understand what's going on. And we're flailing about blindly and in doing so, causing harm to others. Simply born of our own endeavour and attempt to protect ourselves or take care of those we love and value. And yet as we deepen, as we grow, we start to sense that all of this is of the same fabric and nature. That we're part of organic life. That this body, heart and mind is an expression of that aliveness. And the breath that moves through us, that flows in and out, it's come out of the trees and the grass. The oxygen that sustains us was in the very cells of those trees, but minutes or even moments sometimes before. It is in our very cells. And some of it, of course, was in the very body and lungs of our neighbours, which isn't usually quite such a lovely thought as that it's coming out of the trees. It's like some of what we're breathing in is everybody else's out-breath. Really, it is. And, of course, what we're breathing out is what's sustaining the trees and each other. And it comes in and it gets right inside the very cells of our body, that stuff. And equally it leaves and journeys to another. It can seem at times a paradox that we can't make happen this that we most and so deeply want to make happen. 
to discover our freedom, to realise the deepest truth of life. It's not something that we can do, just like we do things. And nor is there anything that can be done for us by something or someone else. And it might seem that we're stuck if that's the case. We can't make it happen. No one can do it or nothing can do it for us. And yet, in fact, the truth of it is that what we're looking for, what in the depth of our heart we yearn for, is revealed. When that very sense of self being separate from another or other being separate from oneself, when that very distinction is examined and seen to be illusory, to be false, to be untrue, to have no absolute reality to it, in the dissolving of the separation between self and other, between me and you, between this and that, that seeing these bodies are all part of life, equally, inseparably, that in and through this, our life is transformed. When we sense the connection, there's a natural compassion, a natural wish to care for another as we care for ourselves, just as you know, when the and this is one of the wonderful teachings of Shanti Deva, who was a uh, a poet and mystic and wonderful teacher in India in the I think sort of seventh century or thereabouts, and he said, you know, the hand just rubs the foot. When the foot is hurting, the hand rubs it. We don't think about, you know, shall my hand rub my foot? You know, can I be bothered doing something for my foot with this? You know, no. It's clearly the hand just rubs the foot when it's sore. Because the hand is the hand and it's got a different shape and a certain function and the foot is different and in some ways it's another thing or organ we might say. But the hand isn't separate from the foot, is it? There's a hand. And where's the bit where the hand stops and the foot begins? It doesn't happen that way. It's actually a hand foot. (laughs) And in between there's a body. But it's all the same thing. Just a way of talking about it. So we can talk about you and me and this and that. And we have our different needs and our different capacities and our different limitations, of course. But at another level, it's not like that. Shantideva went on to say, just as these limbs are part of this, we see these limbs as part of this body, can we not see all embodied beings as simply the limbs of embodied life? Can we not see that that's so? There is a healing. There is a healing that comes when we start to see through the appearance of separateness that has no ultimate truth to it. The appearance is there. And this is the blindness when we believe that it's ultimately so. There's a healing that comes. And healing and wholeness have the same root. There's a wholeness that comes through that healing. A wholeness, an unbrokenness, an unseparatedness, an undividedness that we long for and that we recognize when we sense and we feel it. We intuit its truth, its fundamental reality, far more substantial in the end than the appearance of separateness. And in that healing and in that wholeness, there is a holiness 
There is a holiness. It's the same root. It's the same word in the end. That which we speak of as the spiritual is revealed in the non-separateness, in the healing of the division, in the, in a way, penetrating the veil of separation and discovering the dimensionality that is undivided, the reality that is without this and that, you and me, now and then, but just is. So I'd like to uh, finish with the words of uh, Black Elk, who was a holy man of the Ogala Sioux, a Native American people. And he describes his own experience in these ways, in this words, these words. He says, And then I was standing on the highest mountain of them all, and round about beneath me was the whole hoop of the world. And while I stood there, I saw more than I can tell, and I understood more than I saw. For I was seeing in a sacred manner the shapes of all things in the spirit, and the shape of all shapes as they must live together like one being. And I saw that the sacred hoop of my people was one of many hoops that made one circle wide as daylight and as starlight. And in the centre grew one mighty flowering tree to shelter all the children of one mother and one father. And I saw that it was holy. The dissolution of the division, the separation, and the appearance of other and self. In that dissolution, wisdom and compassion are the natural fruit and flowers, and there is an unshakable freedom that is revealed as equally the nature of all things and life itself. So let's sit quietly for a few moments together.
So may we all, through our practice here together and in our lives, come to know deeply that profound interconnectedness that we are part of. And to know the profound healing and freedom of life that is unbound and undivided. For our own welfare and liberation. And for the welfare and the liberation of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.